I want to thank you for joining us for our weekly Calvary Church podcast. Pastor Otis here. Today, we have a guest speaker, Pastor Carl Vondahar from Calvary Kids, sharing God's Word with us. For more information about Calvary Kids or the ongoing ministry of Calvary Church, please visit us at InvernessCalvary.com. As I was preparing this message, I thought, you know, I want to I wanna come and I want to wanna try to answer a question that, that I think you're asking. And being in the ministry for, for many years, we've, I've heard a lot of questions. A lot of questions like, um, you know, how do I know what God's called me to be? Or, or how do I know what, what God's voice sounds like? Or, or how do I know how to, how to study the Bible? Or, or how do I know what God wants me to do? And if we were to take all those questions and kind of lump them up into one question, I think that question would be this. How do I live a godly life? And so I'm going to do my best to try to answer that question uh, for us all this morning. So before we do that, let's pray, because ultimately he's the one that's going to help us answer that. So Father, we come before you and we acknowledge we are nothing without you. Lord, we are vessels that need to be filled. We are um, servants that want to be um, understanding of what you called us to. So, Father, help us to see your word today. Help us to understand our roles and what we are to do in response to what you have given us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to answer that question, I want to go to Second Peter chapter 1. And 2 Peter's amazing book, and he just jumps right in. Verse 3, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life. So God has given us everything we need. All the materials are there. His divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life through our knowledge of Him. So He's given it to us, but it comes through what we know about God. Moving on, verse 4 says, Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises. And we know the promises are God's word. And so the more of the promises we know, then the more closely we are able to participate in the divine nature and having escaped the corruption in the world. So God has given us everything we need to live a godly life, but it comes through our knowledge of him. And through this knowledge, he's going to enable us to partake of divine natures, to partake of the kingdom of God, and ultimately live the godly life that we all want to live. But there's something I need to to let you know. These truths that God has made available to us, these keys that that will unlock divine abilities in us, these answers that we desperately need, well, how do I say this? Um, The answers that we desperately need, God has, well, he's hidden them from you. He's taken what we need and desperately want, and he's hidden them from us. See, God likes to play hide-and-seek. But not hide-and-seek like an older child. He likes to play hide-and-seek like my four-year-old. 
I'm sitting on the couch, and my four-year-old comes up to me, and he says, hey, let's play hide-and-seek. Okay. You count. What do you want me to count to? Count to four. Okay. One, two, three, four. Right or not, here I come. So I get off the couch, and I stand up, and I walk around. My son hasn't moved six feet. He's just gone around the couch. And I walk around the couch, and I see him crouched down, hands under his chin, smiling as big as he can. And I said, I found you. And he jumps up and says, come get me. And he starts running. See, for my four-year-old, hide and seek is not, it's not about the hiding. It's about being found. And God plays hide and seek the same way. He hides, not that he can stay hidden, but that, so that we would find him. Now, I do have some scriptures to back up this outlandish claim that God plays hide and seek. In Luke chapter 8, we see Jesus and doing what Jesus usually does. He speaks in parables. And a parable is a story that is relevant to the culture. And so one day he stands up in front of a group of people and he tells a story. He says, all right, one day there was a guy. He had some seed. He cast the seed. Some fell on the, on the path. The birds ate it up. He threw some on the rocks. The sun scorched it. He threw some on the weeds, and they choked it out. And then he threw it on the good soil, and it grew. Thank you. And he walks off. So Jesus just gave a tutorial on how to plant a seed to farmers. So the audience probably was a bit perplexed, but I know the disciples were perplexed because in Luke chapter 8, verse 9, they come to him, and they're like, what? What was that all about? Everybody knows how to plant a seed. You don't throw it on the rocks. What was the meaning of that parable? And Jesus said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. So a parable is a story that has a deeper and hidden truth. And Jesus is unashamed of that. Colossians 2 shows us how God hides things. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the church of Colossus, and he says, listen, guys, I am praying for you. I am contending for you. I, my goal is that you would be encouraged in heart and united in love, that you may have the full riches of complete understanding, that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Acts 17, verse 26 one of my favorite verses, when I'm having a bad day, I go to this verse and I'm reminded, oh yeah, God's in control. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out for them their appointed times and histories and boundaries of their lands. So, so God placed you here in 2017 and he placed your great-great-grandfather where he was in his place on purpose. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. You only find things that have been hidden. That we would reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God plays hide and seek, but he's always within reach. So God has taken all the answers to all the deep questions that we have, and he's hidden them. You know, when I was preparing for this message, I kind of 
I was kind of starting on one path, and then I was kind of felt like the Lord led me a different way, and I was telling the guys about it the other day, and I was kind of nervous about it um, because I felt like I might accidentally, through today's message, step on some toes. Uh, and what makes me nervous about that is because what I'm going to share today, I'm not 100% in either. Uh, so I, I, brought, I brought something for us today. So if I perchance happen to step on, on your toes, I just want you, I brought my shoes. I just want you to know if I step on yours, I'm, I'm probably going to step on mine as well. Okay, so, so they'll just be here um, because I do. I, I step on my own toes through today's message. You see, God hides things so that we will seek him. Therefore, seeking him becomes a bit of a litmus test. So if we seek him, it implies that we, we want him. If we don't seek him, it implies we don't want him. So if we want to live a godly life and, and take the things that God's made available to us, then it's going to require something from us. It's going to require some searching. And this searching will certainly require something of us. God hides things because he knows us also. Since time began, God has watched the roller coaster of belief and disbelief, faith and no faith, obedience and disobedience, love, hate. And after a while, God's like, you know what? You, you guys don't even know what you want. So I'm going to do a new thing. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to institute a hide-and-seek principle, and I'm going to take everything that you need to know to live a godly life, and I'm going to hide it in my son. And when you're ready, you just come get it. So it's almost as if through 2 Peter and, and Colossians 2, God is speaking to the church saying, you're it. Whenever you're done counting, and by the way, take as long as you want, it's up to you. But when you're done counting, come find me. I'll be waiting. So this morning, I want to share four disciplines that I think are imperative to the seeking of God. Now, these aren't going to be brand new. You've heard them before. But I want to share them in the light of if we want to find God, then we have to seek him out. So these four disciplines, the thing about disciplines is they don't come naturally. They come because you tell them to. So at some point, we have to take ownership of our faith and say, no, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to seek the Lord. The first discipline is very simple. Commit to the journey. In Psalm 84, we get a beautiful picture of what it looks like to commit to the journey. Psalm 84, verse 5 says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Now, I love this word pilgrimage, um, mainly because it's in English. I don't have to look up the Greek. Um, but the idea of a pilgrimage is very simple. As, as a religious follower um, in our Christian faith, we don't really have too many pilgrimages, but in other religious faiths, they do. And so as on a pilgrimage, the pilgrim knows exactly where they're going. 
I think a lot of times when we think about the idea of, of seeking God and trying to discover truth, we, we kind of feel like we're, we're walking you know, blind. Like, I, I hope I find it. I hope I figure it out. But a pilgrimage, you know exactly where you're going. You're going to a very well-known location. So someone on a pilgrimage, they know exactly what it's going to take to get there. They know they're going to have to jump on a plane, then get on a bus, maybe a cab, and they might have to hire a guide and a donkey to get where they want to go. But there's nothing stopping them from going. They know exactly where to go, and they have committed to the journey. So if a pilgrimage is like seeking God, then that means that God, is a, there's a very well-known location for us to go. So where do we find God? Well, the book of Colossians tells us exactly where to find God. In Colossians 1.15, it says, the Son is the image of God, the exact representation of God. Colossians 1.19 says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So we look to Christ. If we're going to set our hearts on a pilgrimage, we look to Christ. In Colossians 3, so since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden in Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, meaning when you find him, then you will also appear in glory. And of course, let's not forget what book of John says, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a few verses later, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So if we want to find God, then we need to look to Christ. And when I say Christ, I mean the Word. Because after all, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. So Real quick, I want to show you what probably one of the most misunderstood and most difficult disciplines in the Christian faith. You ready? <clears throat> okay. ah, there we go. I got it. First try. See, once you get it open, the pages flip real easy. The trick is getting it open. I say the most complicated, not because it really is difficult. There's no trick in it to it. It's just, unfortunately, this is one of the most seldom used practices, reading the Bible. And if we're going to seek God, that's going to be a discipline that we must institute. So discipline number two is study the Word of God. Now, once we open it, what are we going to find? Well, we're going to find everything we need for a godly life. And the way we find this precious knowledge is through a consistent seeking and study of God's Word. Now, the seeking and the study of God's Word, that's going to look different for each one of us because we learn differently, we see things differently, and that's fine. But the consistent seeking part, well, that needs to stay consistent amongst all of us. A few years ago, the Lord taught me something uh, using my own appetite. See, when I wake up in the morning, first thing I do is grab a cup of coffee. I mean, who doesn't, right? And so, as you know, coffee is an appetite suppressant. So many times in the morning after my cup of coffee, I don't feel like eating. So I, I don't have breakfast. Nine, ten o'clock comes around, I'm not hungry. 
12 o'clock comes, I'm not hungry. So many days, I'll even skip lunch because I'm not going to go eat if I'm not hungry. I'm busy. I have things to do. So I don't eat lunch. But there are some days when I would actually eat breakfast, and whether it was a big breakfast or a small breakfast, I noticed by 9, 10 o'clock, I started to get a little hungry. And then by 11 o'clock, I didn't care what was going on that day. I was going to lunch because I was starving. And I was perplexed. I'm like, when I don't eat, I don't get hungry. But when I do eat, I'm starving. And the Lord just told me, you create an appetite. And the same is true with my word. See, when I don't eat in the morning, my body is like, okay, it's dormant. But when I eat something, the metabolism kicks in, digestion kicks in, and nutrients move out to my body and the organs, and my body's like, ooh, yeah, that was good. Let's do that again. God's Word's the same. If you, if you don't read it, you don't miss it. But when you do read it, something comes alive on the inside, and your spirit's like, ooh, that was good. Let's do that again. So in a way, we have to be disciplined and create an appetite for God's word. When Jesus walked the earth, he said something about physical food and God's word as well. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So why is studying the word of God so important? Because we were not meant to live on bread alone. But we were meant to live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, with a consistent diet of seeking God's word, our spirits and our faith will grow stronger. So what makes Scripture so healthy? When I think about the power of God's word, I can't help but go to Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to pierce soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It goes down even to judge the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. So when you take the word of God and you open it up, you're not opening up an ancient, irrelevant text. You're opening a book that's full of life, full of power. And as you read the words on the page, those words come into your mind and they are living and active. And they begin to pierce who you are. They go through your soul and spirit, joints and marrow. They go down to the deepest parts of you, the place you don't want anybody to see. Maybe even the places you don't even know are there. It goes all the way down to your heart and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes that are there. Now, that word judge, it doesn't mean like a condemnation judge. It's, it's, the actual word is assess. So as you open up the word of God, the living and active power of God, the very words that God breathed himself come into you, pierce your soul and spirit, and it goes down to your heart, and you begin to not only recognize who God is, in his, in his love and His power and His grace, but at the same time you're seeing how powerfully loving God is, you're seeing who you are as well. You're seeing where you might need to change. You see where, where you're strong, and you see where you're weak. And so without the opening of the Word and the living and active Word coming inside of you, we miss understanding who God is, and we miss understanding who we are. And another great aspect of God's word is, is when we find out who we are and we find out where we're, we're lacking, 
The Word of God actually gives us the ability to pinpoint areas in our faith where we can grow. Because Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. So let's just say you're, you're struggling with, with fear. So what do you do? What's the opposite of fear? Confidence, boldness, trust. You find scriptures that are about confidence and boldness and trust, and you begin to speak those out loud. This is when I, when I love what Jesus says, when you pray, go into your closet and close the door, because then nobody can hear me talk to myself. Because this is how I study the Word of God. Very rarely will I read an entire chapter of the Bible. And we're only talking 40, 50 sentences. Many times I would just sit on one or two verses. And if I do read an entire chapter, I'm just trying to figure out the context of that one verse. And I'll just sit on one verse and I'll read it over and over. And I'll read it out loud. And I'll, and I'll stop at each word. And, and I'll begin to allow the Word of God to come inside of me and, and to begin to assess what's in me. And I begin to ask questions. Well, if the God's Word says this, why don't, how come I don't see this in my heart? And, and, and how do I do this? And, and so let's just say your fear is something that you're struggling with. And maybe there's this, this issue going on in your life right now. Or, and hypothetically, let's just be imagined for a second. You're about to walk into a situation that is, has been breeding fear in your life. And, and you know you're going to have to face this issue sooner or later, and, and the time is coming, you're going to have to face it. But you're fearful. And you're reading the Word of God, and you recognize, I'm, I'm fearful, and I recognize God, fear is not from God, because that's what the Word says. And so you find scriptures that are the opposite of fear, courage and faith. You find a scripture like Psalm 27. Before you go into that situation that has bred fear into your life, you read this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advanced against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes that will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Faith comes by hearing. You, you take this verse that's three verses. You take these verses and you say them out loud ten times in a row. I promise you, when you walk into that situation that used to breed fear, you're going to have a lot more courage and a lot less fear because faith comes by hearing. The Word of God becomes a seed that you plant into your heart and you water that seed by speaking it over and over. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about husbands loving their wives and, and washing them with the water of the word. So the word of God has a, an ability to wash us and cleanse us. But we've got to have a discipline of, of using it, of studying it, of knowing even what's in there. Having a godly life requires knowledge of God. How can you believe God's word if, if, if you don't know it? So studying of God's Word has got to be a priority in our lives. So when we have a consistent seeking of God's Word, our knowledge of God and our faith are guaranteed to grow. The third discipline I want to mention in seeking God is prayer. Now hold on. Make, make, 
keeping, stay engaged. The P word has a tendency to turn the attention span off for some folks. So, so stay with me, okay? Prayer. First thing I want to say about prayer is there are many scriptures that we cannot obey unless we pray. Like, for example, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Well, you got to tell him what your cares are. you got to talk to him. And according to Hebrews 4.16, you may never receive help in time of need if you don't pray. 4.16 tells us, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you approach God's throne of grace and have nothing to say, what's he going to give you? Does God know your needs? Yes. Then why did he put that in there? Because he wants you to come to him and say, hey, I need this. And then he gives it to you. And then you know it came from him. It didn't come from your willpower or something else, but it came from him. But prayer is a lot more deeper than just presenting our needs to God. This is how important prayer is. Jesus, the Word, prayed. He prayed so much that he caught the attention of the disciples. The disciples saw Jesus' lifestyle of prayer, and they thought, man, that's, that's got to be, has to do something with all the miracles we're seeing. And they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. But the disciples didn't always have this appreciation for prayer. And we see this in Mark chapter 1. This is one of those moments in, in the Gospels where, where Jesus didn't really make much sense. Whenever you read the Gospels, sometimes you come across a story where, where there's a conversation and somebody says something and Jesus says something and the, the two just, they don't match. Sometimes you wonder, was there a misprint in my Bible or did Jesus actually hear the statement the other guy made? And I think what's going on is, is when we read the Gospels, that's a, a, a literal narration of Jesus' physical life on earth. And so we hear this conversation took place in the physical realm, but Jesus is not only focused on what's happening around him, he's also hearing from the Spirit. And sometimes he reacts not by what he sees, but he reacts by what the Spirit of God is saying. And so sometimes you get this, what? Mark chapter 1 is one of those moments. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. Now, I could stop right there, and there's a whole lot of wisdom. Sometimes we just need to get a little, uh, we need to get close to God before the busyness of the day overtakes us. But Jesus got up early in the morning, went to a solitary place, and prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone's looking for you. I love how the Bible uses the words. They exclaimed, which implies maybe there was a little bit of frustration, a little anxiety in the disciples. And just to make sure their point was heard, they exaggerated a little bit. They exclaimed, everyone. Really? Was everyone really looking for Jesus? I don't think so. I don't think everyone was looking for Jesus. But there was a few people looking for Jesus, and it made the disciples nervous. 
And they come to Jesus and they said, everyone's looking for you. But I think what they were thinking in their hearts was, what the heck are you doing? You're over here all by yourself, and we're over here taking care of all these people, and what you're doing over here, it's not helping what's going on over there. What you're doing here is not, has, it, has nothing to do. It's not helping with what's going on over here. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've thought the same thing when I'm praying. What the heck am I doing? This has nothing to do with my to-do list. My time in prayer is not shrinking my to-do list. It's actually making it bigger. This makes no sense. But if that's our understanding of prayer, then we're missing it. Because what happens next is remarkable. I love what Jesus says in response to Simon. Simon says, everybody's looking for you. Let's go. We've got a schedule to keep. We've got a luncheon and a dinner, and you've got four speaking engagements. This is the how you do it, Jesus. This is how we do ministry. So Jesus, in Mark 138, replies, okay, let's go somewhere else. Let's go to a nearby village so I can preach there also, because that is why I have come. See, Jesus spent time in prayer, and what he was doing, he was hearing God, and he was getting refueled and refreshed and reminded of why and what he was here for. And because Jesus spent time in prayer and he heard God, he was not moved by what moved the people around him. He was not moved by the urgent. He was not even moved by need, but he was moved by the heart of God. Because he heard from God, he was able to walk the path God had for him. And sometimes we've got to do the same thing. We've got to get along with God and just hear from him. What is on your heart, God? Not only is prayer a response to obedience of God's word, but it's also a moment where our faith is refueled. Our hearts are realigned. And we have a chance to hear from God what he wants to do today, in us, and through us. The fourth and final discipline, it's a real simple one, it's to gather together. I think it's safe to say that everyone in here, we're pretty good on this one, because we're here, we're gathering together, but this is such a vital discipline in the seeking of God, I didn't want to skip over it, so I just, I just have one point I want to make about gathering together. See, disciplines are only good if they're done consistently. And over the past few years, we've seen a trend in the church where the average attendance of an average believer is, has gone from four times a month to one to two times a month. Is this something we should be concerned with? I mean, honestly, what's the difference? If a believer, if he pays his whole tithe on that one time he comes, and if the preacher keeps preaching, does the church really miss out on anything? To answer that, we need to look at the purpose behind why God wants us to gather together. In Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us in verse 23, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. 
Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Also in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, it says, When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. Everything must be done so that a church may be built up. In 1 Corinthians 12, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So I have one question. Everybody in here would like a breakthrough, right? We all come in with with some level of need of God moving in our life. Jonathan, what if your breakthrough depended on Dan in the back? Wouldn't you want that guy in the back to have sought God this week? Wouldn't you want that guy in the back to have prayed and heard God's heart? And this is kind of how it's supposed to work. He spends time seeking God and, and praying, and, and he gets a, a burden on his heart. He's, he needs to pray for somebody. Maybe, maybe you're, I'm not speaking this, but you may just say financial trouble just for the burden you have. And he has a, God lays on the heart, I'm going to pray for someone for the financial burden. And God's going to give him a word, or somehow God's going to work a breakthrough in your life through him. That's the beauty of the church. When we come together, we're supposed to bring something. All week long, we're seeking God and hearing from Him and, and, and walking His path, and He's going to fill us with gifts and, and words of instruction and revelation. That's the beauty of when we come together. Now, Jonathan, what happens if He doesn't show up? Uh-oh. Now, if you're at the end of your rope, God's merciful, and I'm sure He'll, he'll come through. But if He doesn't show up, we're all tempted to say, well, I don't need him. I just need God. I don't need a, another person. I just need God to work in my life. And if we think that, then we're actually not agreeing with Scripture. Because in Corinthians 12, it talks about we are the body of Christ. And then it illustrates how, how a body works, a human body. All, in a human body, there are all different parts, different functions, different members. And the eye cannot say, I don't need the foot. And the foot cannot say, I don't need the eye. So you can't say you don't need him, specifically him. The same is true for me. I, I need someone in here very specifically. See, we're a body. And each one of us have certain functions and certain jobs and certain giftings. And God has designed it that way. And when we come together, those gifts manifest. And God is able to, to work within the church as he desires. And so that's why it's a discipline. It's not just about coming to fill a seat. No, it's, it's coming to fill a role in the body of Christ. So gathering together becomes this discipline. When we gather together, each of us brings a need or a burden, but we also bring love, good deeds, and gifts of the Spirit so that when we, we can experience the joy of gathering together. You know, I started this morning with the first discipline of committing to the journey, and we looked at Psalm 84. And I want to wrap up today looking at Psalm 84. Psalm 84 says, Blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. 
As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. That word Baca means a place of weeping, dryness, or barrenness. And so as those who have their hearts set on pilgrimage, like I am determined I'm going to find God, as they pass through seasons of hardship, they make it a place of springs where the autumn rains also cover it in pools. They, make it a, they leave behind life as they pass through. They go from strength to strength until each appears before God in Zion. I hope you've enjoyed this message from Calvary Church. For more information on this message or to listen to other teachings, visit us at InvernessCalvary.com. Connect with us for all the latest news on services, events, and more through our website or by following us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening and God bless.